Hi, it's Rabbi Jimmy Golf. I want to thank you so much for joining me this week. This uh, past Shabbat was Interfaithways Shabbat in Philadelphia. This is a uh, collection of congregations who um, get together and do some learning and some teaching about issues regarding interfaith families within our midst. And this particular sermon will actually focus on uh, some of the issues that come out of interfaith and even tie back into the Torah portion, I hope. Uh, again, I thank you for joining me. You can always email me at rav, as in Victor, J-I-M, at AOL.com, or you could call me at 610-624-3441. Again, thank you, and shalom. So I don't know if my memory is serving me correctly, but I, I seem to remember that once uh, Al Warsprand, the um, uh, vaunted voice of social action within the reform movement, uh, wrote a book entitled uh, Don't Worry, uh, Details to Start Worrying, Details to Follow. And um, in that particular book, he wrote down a series of insights about uh, being a rabbi and dealing with various people. And uh, my memory... Somehow I remember that in that particular book, he um, wrote in there that uh, one committee member turns to another committee member as they're walking into a, a meeting and uh, says, um, you know, I'm not really sure which way I'm going to vote on this particular issue, but I am prepared to be bitter. Well, um, anytime I get to the point where I'm going to talk about interfaith issues from the BIMA, I kind of have that particular um, uh, fear or memory. Uh, I remember once trying to talk about this from one pulpit and, you know, for some people it's just too raw an issue. And even though I'd spoken about welcoming and spoken about all sorts of things that I thought were the right messages, the minute I walked off the beam, I got jumped by a congregant or two for no other reason seemingly than I had dared to broach the issue from the bema. Well, I'm going to broach it in this particular sermon. The Torah portion um, this evening, uh, just to relate it, is um, bookended by the deaths of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah dies early in the Parsha, and after burying her, Abraham sets to the task of finding a wife for Isaac. He entrusts his servant to go and find a bride for his son. From his family up north, Isaac and Rebekah are married, which is the love story of Parshat Chaye Sarah. And then Abraham dies at the age of 175 years old. After he dies, his sons Isaac and Ishmael take him to the cave of Machpelah, and he is buried next to Sarah. The Torah portion ends with the lineage of Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar. Ishmael, the son of Hagar. In Hebrew, Ishmael ben Hagar is a strange name in Hebrew. His name translates as, He will listen to God, the son of the stranger. He will listen to God, the son of the stranger. Hmm. It seems that, that while revered and praised and given the status of the first patriarch, and the one chosen by God to found monotheism, what well, seems like Abraham is involved 
from the outset of his family life in an interfaith relationship. It appears that Ishmael is also not necessarily an MOT, a member of the tribe, and that he and his mother are thrown out of Abraham's camp because of the challenges of sibling rivalry between the younger Isaac and the older Ishmael. And of course, Sarah demands that Hagar no longer be a part of the camp. How, how do we deal with those who are not considered part of our camp or, as more often the case, reside within our camp even if they are not members of the tribe? The truth is that we struggle with the ideas around interfaith issues and those of non-Jews within our community. Yet, as we can see from our Torah portion, non-Jews have been ever-present in our midst. There is not one patriarch who, according to the Torah, the literal Torah, is marrying a Jewish girl because, well, there aren't any. Now, our Midrash and commentators run in to bend over backwards to read conversions into the stories of our matriarchs. But truth be told, our Torah tradition is far more focused on what our ancestors did rather than what they formally claimed to believe or any systems they bought into. I want to talk about Ishmael this evening because, well, he is the most prominent non-Jew in our Torah portion. Unless you want to talk about Rebecca, of which we have no conversion evidence, and her brother Laban, it was his idols that would later be stolen by Rachel, but that's in a future Torah portion. The Torah tells us very little about Ishmael, except the expulsion story and the story in our Parsha tonight that he returned to bury Abraham. We can at least infer from this that while both boys had reason enough to dislike Abraham, I mean, he, 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 he did try to, he at least put their lives at risk, if not tried to kill them, one by the Akedah and the other one by abandonment in the wilderness. Ishmael, being the one who was abandoned, still returned to bury his father. By the account we have in the Torah, Ishmael was not the best son, though, well, could you blame him? Yet it is our traditional sources that take his somewhat innocuous story and make it into a series of tales. Now before I begin, let me be clear. The men who wrote the Midrash were responding to their time and age. They had good reason to be angry with the non-Jewish world for a variety of reasons, including, but not limited to, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, forced conversions, economic hardships, discriminatory taxes, random acts of violence, programs, and, well, you, you, you get the idea. Still, still, I want us to remember and reflect that while the authors of some of these Midrashim I share with you may have been describing a tradition they learned about Ishmael, still, in writing it down, they put their hands on the story and tell us a little bit about their own issues, possibly even their own fears. So, there are Midrashim about Ishmael that describe him as a horrible person. Rabbi Chanoch Zundel, who lived in Bialystok, Poland in the early 19th century, commenting, so this is a super commentary on Genesis Rabbah, a 4th, 5th century Midrash, says that Ishmael was such a rotten person 
that he would climb over garden fences and seduce married women. Zundel continues by claiming that Ishmael would hunt grasshoppers to sacrifice them to pagan gods. According to Exodus Rabbah, a 9th to 10th century text, it's reported that Ishmael sat and robbed people because his father Abraham had banished him from the camp. Well, I mean, if he had no other means of supporting himself, you might be able to understand that one. According to elsewhere in Genesis Rabbah, the rabbis took the phrase kolbo, which literally means it's all here, and put the two words together to spell the word kevlo, um, that being his dog, and then proceeded to judge Ishmael for not keeping the laws of Kashrut. Which, of course, in terms of the progression of the Torah, they don't exist. And even if they did, Ishmael had already been thrown out of the camp, and there wasn't a Hebrew national that he could go to at the local Acme to buy. And again from Genesis Rabbah, lest we thought they were done, the ministering angels, the Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh crowd, supposedly raced to accuse Ishmael for the crimes of his descendants, future tensions between Jews and Arabs. However, God rebuked the angels and said, Ishmael is currently a righteous person. I only judge a person based on who he is, not on what I know or think his descendants could or might do. As I read these Midrashim about Ishmael, it seems that many of them wanted to do anything or a few things, just to cast a shadow on his character. Either the explanations told us something that was the greatest fear of the rabbis, conversion out of Judaism, idolatry, sexual promiscuity, a complete disregard for the laws of Kashrut, or the text needed to try and play the wishing game with Ishmael. You know this game? Where sometimes we hear people wonder out loud why God gave us this piece of land as a promised land, as opposed to, let's say, Saudi Arabia? Well, we don't get to ask God for retroactive justice, and God tells the angels, and really it's the Jewish community telling itself, we don't get to make certain decisions. We have to do what we can with what we have now. So, so, so these are some pretty awful things the rabbis of antiquity wrote. Is there anything redeeming about Ishmael? Could he? Might he have a redeeming quality of some sort? According to Talmud Sanhedrin 89b, Ishmael felt a degree of pride, having entered into the covenant of circumcision at the age of 13 years old, as opposed to Isaac entering it at the age of eight days old. Elsewhere, Ishmael divorces his wives because they do not show proper respect to Abraham. Again, Genesis Rabbah shares that Ishmael showed deference to Isaac at the funeral of Abraham and gave Isaac precedence in the text when they are mentioned. And they buried him, being Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons. Thus Ishmael allowed Isaac to be named first in the mitzvah of burying. In fact, to this day, the rules for a set of rules for interpreting the biblical text are known as the Midot, the rules of Rabbi Ishmael. Even, even one of our greatest rabbis bears the name of someone 
who was not traditionally considered directly connected to Judaism. And still, Rabbi Ishmael's parents named him after Abraham's first son with Hagar. We have a bit of a paradox in our tradition about this questionably Jewish son of Abraham. According to the Torah, Ishmael founded the Arab peoples of the world, and thus he too became a great nation. Yet, with all of our good on one side of the scale and all, all the bad and difficult moments on the other side of the scale, where does it balance out for us? Or should we be looking to this collective memory of both good and bad examples to define how we approach interfaith families? Does it really serve us to take such writing and fashion our answers, either those being of Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof against interfaith marriage, or take the tact that it doesn't really matter at all because we live in the great melting pot and who has to care? One of the things that both of these answers share, and this is the difficult piece, is that it leaves all Jews potentially off the hook for being involved in the marriage, the family, and the care and feeding of such families. If we say that is the way of the world, or that is the way of the United States, it doesn't matter that I do, or, or we say no, 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 absolute condemnation of any interfaith marriage, we remove ourselves from engagement in trying to understand that as a community we have a responsibility to foster and be open and honest about the welcome we extend to interfaith families. In other words, like God said to ministering angels, I can only judge him on who he is, not on who his descendants will be. We too have to remember that we cannot judge on what might happen. And as a Jewish community, we will be judged based on how we respond through actions, through our actions to families who navigate issues that are involved when two faiths live under the same roof. We need to remember the polemics of the past, and maybe there are just good cones, those orange cones on the road, that we should steer, steer clear of these polemics when they reside as people in our sacred and hopefully safe space. So, to end, um, I want to share a, a story and some insights. In 2004, I went to... Um, uh, do some research in Mississippi, and I, I called up um, a, the president of a congregation, who agreed to meet with me, and and as I entered his house, he turned to me and he said, um, I had been the rabbi in Mississippi for six years. He said, uh, "You buried my wife." I thought for a moment, and I remembered that she hadn't been Jewish and that she had spoken French. And I responded after a couple seconds, blindsided by the greeting. She spoke French. As we sat um, with me asking questions of him, uh, another elderly lady from the congregation, and his daughter, um, the story that unfolded was amazing. The um, older other woman um, had uh, either become Christian or was raised as a Christian, but was a direct blood relative of the founding rabbi, 1866. Though now she made her home in the synagogue. And this man's daughter admitted that even though, and these are her words, she didn't consider herself officially Jewish, she identified herself with the Jewish community 
more more than the Catholic community of her mother, though she had gone to Catholic private school. Now, this wasn't New York or, or Philadelphia or Chicago. It was small-town Mississippi, where these people navigated their identities and through remarkable moments and odds, they, they still found their way back. They were still connected. Now, um, to end this uh, conversation, I, I, I want to give you um, some insights that I have. And uh, first, a disclaimer. This list is by no means total. I am not going to tell you that it is completely accurate. But what I will tell you is that it's my list of 10 things that we need to remember in dealing with interfaith families. Number one, conversion to Judaism works best when both the Jew and non-Jew learn together and experience the process as a family. There's a corollary to number one, by the way. If a non-Jew converts in a marriage, the Jew may be threatened because the non-Jew's experience is as an adult and any, and any Jewish ambivalence towards Judaism is challenged by the enhanced engagement of the converting partner. Number two, never assume that a Jew or a, Jew or a family or an interfaith family um, does not care or have the potential to care about Judaism. Number three, give your children one religious identity. One day you won't be here and they will need the resources, tradition, community, friends beyond you to cope. Number four, understand that religious identity is in flux for the rising generations. They need to sort out their understandings of what religion and religions mean. Be patient. Number five, even the most welcoming synagogues can be daunting and overwhelming places, but synagogues are not free to desist from the task of welcoming strangers, no matter who they are. Number six, a wedding lasts an evening. We want marriages to last a lifetime. Number seven, showing respect and demonstrating being a mensch have never ended a relationship with any family, interfaith or otherwise. Number eight, the past is the past. Don't judge people by who they come from. Don't judge people based on past hatreds. Meet them where they on are, excuse me, Meet them where they are and be honest in who you are. Number nine, non-Jewish grandparents are still grandparents and are often touched, if not revel in the successes of their Jewish grandchildren, even religious successes. Number 10, in a place where no one is human, strive to be human it is a huge step to claim an identity for one's family. That identity should foster the best in a family. And I share these 10 with you because as we think back to Ishmael, 
Ishmael may not have been the greatest son or even the nicest person. But still, regardless of what our texts turned him into, good or bad, nothing can deny the fact that he showed up to bury his father and that he still strove to observe what we would call being a decent human being. May we all be able to find a way to a religious observance for ourselves and understanding religion that would lead us to also be able to behave that way. I wish you the best of weeks, and I would love to hear from you on what you think about this particular assemblage of ideas, rules, and uh, stories about non-Jews, Ishmael, and lessons you might want to see added to this particular list. Again, have a wonderful week. Shavuot Tov.